52 episodes, 52 weeks. This is the last episode of the first year of Abstract, colon, the future of science, bringing unprecedented accessibility to graduate research. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode and all the previous ones. Looking forward to, of course, the future of science. Before we hop into things, here's a quick list of the kind of questions you can expect to be answered on today's episode. So, what's the distinction between reptiles and amphibians? What do I do if I'm bitten by a tick, and what does it mean to be an endangered species? Is there life out there in the universe? What is ecology? Why do animals move? And what are the current limitations on animal tracking methods? Answers to questions like these, and I can assure you, for the last time in the first year of Abstract, many, many, many more. So, let's do it. Natalie Jredini is a second-year PhD student at McGill University in the Biology Department and Redpath Museum. She's worked on diverse projects in ecology prior to and during her graduate studies, including biological control techniques, animal-borne disease spread, conservation and monitoring of endangered animal populations, species assemblages, as well as science communication and public outreach. For her PhD thesis, she's researching the causes of wild animal movements, specifically their dispersal away from their habitats, which is a poorly understood phenomenon due to the limitations in tracking methods. When she's not out in the field collecting data or cooped up on her computer analyzing that data, she enjoys film photography, even though the photographs don't always turn out as planned. So without further ado, let's welcome Natalie to the podcast. Natalie, how's it going? I'm good. How are you? Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm doing great. Thank you for being here. This is, this is excellent. Uh, given that you're into film photography and wildlife conservation, you must be fond of Sir David Attenborough. <laughs> I sure am. <laughs> he definitely got me into conservation as a kid. Definitely was the first inspirational person that got me into this. Although, weirdly enough, I don't take pictures of animals. I'm more into street photography. But, you know, it, it started off as uh, taking pictures of animals and then turned into a more hipster form of photography, I guess. <laughs> sure, yeah. You start with the animals, then you end up researching the animals, then you take photos of the streets, then you research the streets, then you take photos of other things, and then it's just going to be an infinite regression. Ongoing loop. Never cool. ends. <laughs> I can't wait to see what you're going to be taking photos of when you're 85 years old. So, excellent. Let's get a bit of a sense of how you got to where you are. What kind of research were you doing at the master's level? And when did you know you wanted to actually continue into a PhD? So first research I got exposed to was in my undergrad. So I did a lot of volunteering opportunities with a bunch of labs. I started off in a more microbiology, molecular biology setting. And I quickly realized that that's not for me. Pipetting all day, like kudos to anyone who does that all day. I realized that that's not for me, so I went into ecology labs instead. And volunteering in ecology labs basically means you you take care of the animals in those labs. So it wasn't really important work, but it still got me exposed to what PhD students do. So I did an undergrad thesis, which was mostly um, theoretical. I didn't really do a lot of lab work or field studies because it was during the fall and winter time. But that made me realize that I really like research. i constantly questioning everything, which I think is, a you know, anyone who's curious enough can be a scientist. Um, that's kind of like the defining characteristic for me for what a scientist is. 
so looking for a master's position, actually, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I knew I was interested in population dynamics, interested in movements. You know, there's pros and cons to doing a lot of things in your undergrad. You realize you're, what you're not interested in, but also if you're interested in a bunch of things, it's hard to narrow it down. And wait a second, you didn't want to study humans? You're into movement and population dynamics? Why didn't you stick with of people? animals, specifically. <laughs> animals, yeah. Humans are too predictable yeah. or what? I don't know. I just spend too much time with humans already. I, I need oh, to yeah. <laughs> compartmentalize that. A little bit of escapism. Divide sure. myself from that, yeah. Okay. I think, uh, sure. yeah, I think we know less about what animals are up to, so goes back to that curiosity aspect of like, sure. I want to figure that out. You don't want it to be too easy. Oh, look, a person. I can see them eating a sandwich. (laughs) End of thesis. That would be great. Can you get a PhD out of that? I don't know. I honestly don't know. Maybe sometime down the line. That'd be amazing. Yeah, no, I never thought about anthropology or archaeology or anything like more human-related, past or present. But yeah, that's a good good point. I don't know. Just stuck to the animal aspect of it. It's okay. If you believe in evolution, then, you know, you can can follow any line of an evolutionary path and end up with the current species and study that. So you don't necessarily need to study the Homo sapiens endpoint. You could study any which one you want. So good good point. Good point. And actually, that's that's a good segue into my point of one of the many reasons why I chose amphibians. They're really understudied. So there's a lot of gaps in the amphibian literature and they're really impacted to a whole different degree by climate change and other environmental settings because they're just really sensitive to environmental changes. Amphibians breathe through their skin, basically, so they don't have any kind of barrier protecting them from any changes in their pond acidity, for example, or like temperature changes. And so they get affected really quickly and we don't know a lot about them because ah. they're difficult to find so That's you know so i like me a challenge <laughs> so the like the their amphibious nature is is actually really precarious because they're in such close contact in terms of the way they breathe with their direct well i guess with with two different environments right air and and water so exactly. they have to find like a fine balance exactly they spend their larval stages in water and then as soon as Maybe they start getting the hang of it. They start getting legs and limbs and getting lungs and they get a, get out of the water and figure out a whole new type of environment. Even if they do, some species do still breed in ponds, they spend most of their time on land. So yeah, you've got those two different types of environments that they have to get used to. So just to be clear, so mm-hmm. amphibians, when they're grown adults, do they spend equal time on land and in water or are those both kind of equally important parts of their habitat or like you said is it maybe more that amphibians start off in the water and then move to land as adults so in general yes most amphibians start off in the water as tadpoles for frogs and toads and as a larval form of salamanders and so most of them become completely terrestrial, the only part that's still water-related is when they breed. So they breed in ponds, water pools, but also that that differs per species, but I think in general, that's the general concept of it all. Right. I feel like the stereotypical image of a crocodile, for example, is like just its eyes poking up (laughs) above the water. Is it like having sex below the water? A crocodile is a reptile, not oh, an amphibian. Oh, <laughs> right. See, <laughs> it this is, is a good point. Oh, this is, you know, 
Thank you. This is actually one of the things I want to clear up here because I feel like a crocodile is like, it's like a reptile in amphibian's clothing, you know? <laughs> a lot of people mistake amphibians for reptiles and vice versa, especially like recently someone was trying to debate with me whether a turtle is a reptile or an amphibian, but it's, it's definitely a reptile. There's there's no debate there, but you know, if you go really bad. <laughs> no. I like that. Definitely a reptile. There's also no a there. lot found in the water and a lot found on the ground, but definitely that's, a reptile. That's probably why. That's probably why they, the, the confusion was there. But, you know, if you go back to phylogenetic tree, which, you know, shows you what's more related to what in terms of evolution and evolutionary time, they, they were definitely closely related at some point. But... Reptiles are more closely related to birds than they are to amphibians. So another misconception there. (laughs) I'd like to say that I can see that connection and I I know it to be true, but it's still so hard to wrap my head around that. Although I I guess, I don't know, I'm thinking like penguins are on land and in water. They're they're not amphibians. They're birds. Yes. But equally confusing and seemingly (laughs) amphibious. Oh, God. It's just, uh, it's, I mean, it's a mess. Yeah, you can't just take the definition of like, oh, found in water and on land must be an amphibian because then <laughs> I'm an amphibian so... too then. <laughs> Spend a lot of time. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I guess maybe I shouldn't ask if you breed underwater. Maybe we'll just kind of put that <laughs> put that aside. Um, <laughs> moving forward. Okay, so now that we have a bit of a better understanding of, maybe I guess, the difference between looking at something and saying it's an amphibian because it's in water and on land that is not the case nope. there are distinctions based on the phylogenetic tree okay <laughs> um i know before i was kind of asking about why you didn't decide to study humans i'm curious when we study things like animal disease spread does that apply to how disease spreads in a human population can definitely. we extrapolate yeah definitely yeah so a lot of things that we do when we study animals is partly for their for conservation of our own species, right? So when you're studying a specific species, it's usually to come up with better conservation attempts and figure out what that species is up to. But on a broader scale, when you figure out what animals are doing around you, how they're moving, what impacts them, we're, you know, undeniably linked to all of that. So humans studying what animals are doing would help you understand how it impacts humans and disease spread is a really good example so again coming to animal movements when animals move and disperse to a whole new habitat if they're carrying certain diseases that leads to disease spread into a region that we otherwise thought you know the disease didn't exist and a good example for this is ticks so ticks which are little insects that usually latch onto mammals big and small so on squirrels and deer alike they didn't used to be found in canada at all until sort of recently like i'll say in the early 2000s don't quote me on that one but around that time so they dispersed northward from the states because they latch onto animals that are dispersing northward from the states. So it's kind of like a vector for the vector that carries the disease. Um, <laughs> vectors on so vectors on if vectors, we, yeah. Yeah, so if we knew what the patterns looked like for these animals that could carry the ticks, we could have predicted the spread of this animal-borne disease, which is Lyme disease. That's what ticks yeah. carry. 
Sure. But, yeah. Just just for myself and for those listening, uh, mm-hmm. how can I identify a tick? So they're round, like very circular, flat. They're very hard to crush. If you find one, you have to drown it in ethanol, as as weird as that sounds. And it's not animal cruelty because it's an mm-hmm. insect. <laughs> Some Whoa. people will get mad at that. It's 2021, Natalie. <laughs> let's 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 be accepting of all Because species. it's an invasive insect. There you go. Oh, okay. It's Perfect. a bad insect. If it's invasive, insect. get it out. Yeah. We don't want it. Crush it with a mortar and a pestle. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. And it has, how many legs does it have? Bunch of legs. Kind of looks like Get a flat spider. Kind of oh. looks like a flat spider. I'll say. And when it okay. when it bites you, its head just stays embedded in your skin, so you have to pull it out with tweezers or go to a doctor to pull it out. It's probably uh-huh. okay. I've I've gotten bitten by a tick. That's why. Oh I'm yeah. Like and you live to tell no the Lyme tale. No Lyme disease. No Lyme disease. You have that lived experience. Sweet. Sweet. Yep. Sweet. Okay. <laughs> Maybe we'll have to have a different interview just about your experience getting bit by a tick. Oh, yes. That's going to be a three-hour-long uh, okay. interview for sure. No. First, it flew over, and then it looked <laughs> me in the eyes. And it it crawled from my hair. No. It came out of my nostrils. <laughs> cool. Before we get like knee-deep into your thesis research, which we've already been kind of dancing around here, I just kind of wanted to ask about endangered species for a second, because... Mm-hmm. I've been wanting to ask somebody about this and you seem like the perfect candidate for it. So first of all, how do we define an endangered species? Like, is it something that's purely quantitative, like a a number of, um, a number of organisms left? And I also feel like there are many endangered species out there that we don't even know of because they're just kind of blinking out of existence before we can even find them. Is that the case? That's kind of two questions in one. Definitely yes for the second one, and I'll, I'll uh, circle back yeah. to it. So essentially, there's a lot of research that goes into figuring out if a species is endangered, and there's kind of levels of being endangered. You can be, a species can be threatened or critically endangered or just a species of concern, like of, of low concern, like it could become of status endangered in the future. And those studies compile abundance metrics, so... Uh, basically a time series so over time what the abundance has looked like depending on what species it is what their habitats have become so let's say it's a species that really relies on flat empty plains and those plains don't exist anymore and you see that leading to a smaller number then that goes into deciding that it's an endangered species and you can find a long list of that on the IUCN website which is what all ecologists refer to and what is always updated in terms of what ecologists find and the the studies that we publish and everything. I will put a link to that in the description so people can check out the endangered species. Yeah, you can you can find out a lot about a species it, like it has Kind of like a summary information of what its uh, range looks like now and what its habitat usually is. And, uh-huh. you know, it's a, it's a nice website. <laughs> you can visit the website to fall in love with an organism and then watch as it perishes and leaves the earth forever. <laughs> not all. <laughs> it also touches up on sp- species that are not of concern. So you can, you know, fall in love with okay. an animal that is found and try to go sure. find it. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be fun. Just find humans on there. Are we an endangered Definitely species? endangered. Yes. Yeah. Definitely. Question, question for a different time, but uh, or maybe later. We'll see. Okay. <laughs> so there are lots of species that are just like now going out of existence and now they're gone. Like the last one just died now. Yep. So we do have a lot of species that we still don't know about. Like 
even last week I saw a, a paper that came out about the smallest chameleon known to man now and it's found in Madagascar and it's literally smaller than my fingernail and can you like can you imagine how many other species that are that small that we still don't know about so definitely species again like amphibians that are really more vulnerable than say mammals and birds I'm sure there's a lot of species that existed went unnoticed and are now endangered then that's really sad even even when ecologists or natural historians which are people that study more um, species descriptions and like environmental descriptions I'm sure that when they come to characterize a new species and they only find a few of it that's probably what they speculate is that you know that's slipping away and it's quite sad but mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of species are difficult to to find so this is kind of the best we can do do we know if we found like half of the species that currently exist or have we just barely scraped the surface most studies again are mostly speculative because we go by trends that we see elsewhere do think that we've we haven't reached to find half the species that are mm-hmm. out there Um, especially again in terms of reptile and amphibians just because they're more aloof and they go unnoticed that's why i'm kind of focusing on that but even every once in a while you find a different species of mammals it's just like occurs less commonly than say if you google new species of frog you're going to find a bunch from just this year oh wow okay Mm -hmm. i think we're just getting better at finding them which is great Mm -hmm. and maybe also differentiating them I know mm-hmm. there's like there's like a lot of controversy as to how we differentiate one species from the yeah. other. Yeah, yeah, genetics yeah. analyses. I'm not really specialized in that, but yeah, there's a lot of papers that come out just to say, oh, we thought this was the same species, but it is not, although it looks yeah. exactly the same. So yeah, there's a lot of debate in topics. This like tadpole that. is actually a proto-human. <laughs> Plot twist. <laughs> Boom. Do you think there's uh, life out there in the universe? I like to think so. Yeah, I like. I'm really. You like a fan to think so, but sci-fi. do you really think so? Like, I know you like to, but <laughs> do you believe it, or is it just more of a something? That I think it depends on the day. Yeah, yeah. And some days I'm like, no, no one's gonna come save us from our oh, <laughs> undeniable doom. Oh um, wow, that took a turn. <laughs> <laughs> All right, ladies and gentlemen. You know when you when you when you're dealing with studies on climate change every day you kind of get a little morbid and skeptical yeah. of everything it's okay but, we need that we need that mm-hmm. we can't just have eternal optimists like everything's gonna be just great yeah everyone around me says that and i'm like nope oh good. unfortunately good we need you to be the black sheep yes perfect <laughs> someone has to be in honor of the one-year anniversary of the podcast, I want to read a couple of reviews. We've got one from Big Mike 774 He says, Great educational podcast on a wide array of research topics. Reading academic papers is boring, but hearing about research straight from the researcher with all the passion and context they provide is much more enjoyable and useful for me. Keep it up. Thank you, Jack. We've also got one from Alyssa Diamond. She says, Abstract does an excellent job spreading the word on up-and-coming research while remaining engaging and light. The host is a natural and keeps the interviews extremely focused and informative while ensuring content remains relevant to listeners. Thank you. Overall, Abstract provides an easy and honestly delightful means of accessing the latest research and ultimately improving one's knowledge about the world. Thank you so much, Alyssa. I also want to thank everyone who sent in questions to ask the guests. 
And a special shout out to Josh FG for providing a tremendous amount of feedback, including but not limited to switching from two breaks to one. So you have him to thank for that. <laughs> All right, back to the episode. So let us define ecology. Okay. Yep. Ecology is, in my own definition, the study of animals and plants, how they interact with the environment, and how the environment impacts them. So that's, in general, what ecology is. And then in ecology, you have subsets, which are you know, population ecology, community ecology, global changes in ecology, quantitative ecology, which is kind of what I lean into, but also, you know, you don't need to just be part of one of those many subfields, but. Mm -hmm. And if you study like university, that's college ecology. <laughs> Thanks. Thank <you>. <clears throat> <clears throat> I do pay attention when you speak, but sometimes I get lost in thought when I'm ready to uh, just pop a joke in there, I must admit. Just okay, so, <laughs> so we have the, we have the, this, this bi-directional influence of organism and environment. At what level do you study ecology? Global, like species level, in between? Actually, a bit of both. So it starts off with just a single species, which is a toad species called the Fowler's toad, which is borderline endangered. It's only found in southern Ontario. So it started off with just that species. We have a, we have 30 years of data on that single species, and I was seeing if environmental variables as well as individual variables so environmental variables being landscape change um, the abundance of toads found in an area resource availability stuff like that and individual factors like the sex of the toad the body size of the toad even just the individual itself so like personality boldness stuff like that if those little things or kind of uh, small scale things impact their dispersive movements out of habitat and then with those findings, what I do is bring it up to a broader scale where I can figure out a general pattern that can be applied to several species that would otherwise be more difficult to study. You know, you don't really have 30 years of data on a lot of species out there. Mm -hmm. You were saying already that like even this year, we've already discovered new, new species. So we're just starting from square one. There you go. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You also did say something about uh, the personality. Yeah, I know. Of I these species. <laughs> did you feel like I was going to ask about that? Did you see my yeah. eyebrows raise when you mm -hmm. said personality of a toad? Or see, a... I didn't see. I didn't think that that would be a topic of interest. But there's a there's a lot of ecologists that assign individuality traits because you do see a difference in terms of let's say, a male fighting for females and another male just sitting there being like, okay, I'm just going to wait my, for my turn. So there is a difference in boldness, maybe not perceivable to an extent in toads, but we could account for that by just giving them, you know, ID numbers. Like, I don't come up to them and be like, hey, you feeling like, are you exploring the area well or, or not or, or anything? But just accounting for the fact that they are individuals is uh -huh. uh, something that's being brought to light more and more in ecology. And I can't not include it, even if it's just sure, simple sure, sure. little model organisms. Yep. Do we know 
straight up if the bold ones are the ones who live long enough to procreate like the ones who are going after the lady toads or is it the ones who are more like like the um silent and stoic type who <laughs> who just have have the the female toads flock to them and then no, you so know that, how does that, that work really, yeah that really depends on how the species breeds but in <laughs> in the case of our toads Females are much larger than male toads. So females are, uh, let's say, around six to eight centimeters, and males can be four to five centimeters. So okay, sort of a big difference. That's, and, that's pretty big. Yeah, like fifty percent bigger. Yeah. So during the breeding season, which is just like a couple of weeks long. Yes, there is a I'm breeding just picturing, season. <laughs> I'm six feet tall. I'm imagining a nine foot woman. Like, oh. all right, Jeremy, are we doing this? <laughs> Well, let me tell you what you would do for that. Yeah, yeah. I'd go back in the um, water and hide. <laughs> you go in the water and you start singing. That's how you get it. <laughs> so that's what happens with toads. They, well, most species of frogs and toads, actually, they, they call to attract mates. So that's, you know, similar to birds. So they sit there. They just sit there and call, mm-hmm. depending on whatever their call sounds like. And females hear it and, you know, they make their way to whatever pond that they're found in. And when they're there, males just hop on their back and they're like, okay, we're good. We're good to go now. And that's how it happens. Is that where a leapfrog comes from? Because that's a game now that I will never play with children. (laughs) If it is. No, I don't think so. No. Well, frogs leap and toads bounce. Oh, yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. We're talking about yeah. toads. Different different species, oh, no. right? Totally yeah, different species. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So toads are frogs, but frogs aren't toads. So if you can have frog as the umbrella term mm. and then toad as a term inside that umbrella term. Uh-huh. So, yeah. Okay. So we have the definition of ecology. We know you're studying toads. We have all these different factors that come into play. What are some of the most interesting factors in terms of their impact on things like animal dispersal? Does it have to do more with the individual or does it have to do more with the environment? So it definitely has to do more with the environment. So I tested both environment and individual because I wanted to kind of take it a step back and test these really basic theorems that most studies have been basing um, their studies on. So usually it's taken kind of as factual that, yes, there is an individual difference. Body size equals larger dispersive ability and stuff like that. But I took it a step back to see whether that's the case or not. And there wasn't an individual difference. It was completely random in terms of smaller individuals dispersing farther or vice versa. And in terms of environment, it's really hard to detect it in a lot of landscapes. But over a long time, you can have a difference between interannual dispersive ability. So in in one single year, you wouldn't see a difference. You would see kind of all of them dispersing in the same sort of pattern. But from one year to the next, if you're able to even get those same individuals, even if they've dispersed to a nearby patch, then you can see that it is impacted. So it's probably, you know, amount of resources. Do they even need to move to begin with? How cold was it in the winter? How many were even able to make it? Our study site is actually so dynamic, and that's another reason why they're the perfect study species. So the study site is in Long Point, Ontario, and it's essentially just a sand spit in Lake Erie. So mm-hmm. if there's high waves, it's flattened out. If there's high winds, you have sand dunes that are formed. So it's super dynamic, and that's 
what makes it kind of easier to study these patterns. So yeah, the bottom line is definitely environmental variables affect them more than individual variables, which makes it easier to generalize all these findings across species or even species within the taxa of amphibians. And then eventually I want to go into generalizing it even further to, you know, the goal is all species, but it has to be like a really general trend for it to apply there. Presumably, if there are environmental factors, mm-hmm. these are factors that really just force a species to move. They require some resource that's not available. They have to move or else that they're going to die. And they have this natural desire to move. Sorry. And they have this like need Push, to move, yeah. Right? It basically pushes them up. From what I understand from what, like high school biology and science, like generally species try and conserve as much energy as possible but we don't really waste it are there species that just like move around seemingly for fun just to like explore do they have the curiosity that humans have do you see that maybe in toads or no so definitely exploring or explorative is that even a word behavior is exploratory exploratory thank you i'm the one who should know these words english is hard (laughs) <laughs> it is. Yeah, so you definitely see different types of movement. So when I'm referring to dispersive movements, it's strictly unidirectional, little room for variation. So just it really looks like they're moving from point A to point B. So anything else is just, you know, they're moving around to eat, to find a new refuge site to bask in or hide in or burrow in, or they're exploring the environment. And seen at a very small scale in toads, but yeah, definitely in a species like wolves, you would see an exploratory exploratory movement kind of look more like oscillations more than just a unidirectional linear type of movement. Mm -hmm. So yeah, definitely there are different types of movements that exist. I mean, there's migratory movements too, which just happen as part of species life cycles. So those are not what I'm interested in. I'm just interested in when they're no longer found in a place and that could have, you know, repercussions on the place that they used to be found in. What are some of these repercussions that would result from staying put when they shouldn't? Is Are we talking like, like mass death or are we talking about like creating a new evolutionary path, like a new branch? So that really depends. And, you know, see, see how many different factors there are in ecology. Crazy. That's why it's, it's so difficult to, to model all of these environmental variables and it makes models so complex. But essentially, if our toads were to stay put, they would just die off if their breeding attempts were to decrease and resources were no longer available or they didn't have any sites to hibernate in because they do need those sand dunes that I mentioned before to hibernate Mm -hmm. in. If it's just flat sand, there's nowhere to go. And that's one of the reasons why they're endangered is because that sand spit is becoming smaller and smaller because of rising lake levels, because of climate change. You know, it's all, everything's related. So it's really hard to just isolate one thing. But I'm sure in some species, if you look at it over evolutionary time, so you need more than our 30 years of data, you right, need yeah. centuries of data, you would see this, some kind of adaptive trait. 
the classic example is said is that if certain individuals in a population have a trait that's slightly different or more beneficial than others, you know, they survive due to natural selection and that's how mm -hmm. that trait evolves. But you can't really detect it over a short amount of time. Although 30 years sounds like a long amount of time, it's for <laughs> definitely us. not yeah. for evolutionary um, Yeah. What's patterns. the lifespan of a toad? Like how many generations have we gotten over the course of 30 years, for example? Five. I mean, for... Five years at most per toad, Five. yeah. But we do, we, in, in recent years, we have been really able to re-encounter certain toads. So it's really nice to see that different pattern from one year to the next to test that interannual variation that I was talking about. Do their personalities so. change over time too? Do the bold <laughs> ones just kind of like retire and go, all right, I'm done. I lived the no, fast so life when I was young and they just have a cigar. I wish, I wish I was able to find something like that because they say, you know, juveniles, because they go from tadpole stage to terrestrial, that they would have that urge to go and find themselves a different habitat somewhere else. But I was not able to detect any kind of change. So that's why I went back to those really old theories to begin with is to show that Yes, it was proven at a certain point in time for whatever species, but you can't just take that to be factual and base more data, more more studies on. Um, now that we have better statistical tools and techniques and are able to collect way more data, we're able to disprove theories that were once considered to be like the golden rule. So yeah, <laughs> sorry if I trailed off there, but... Oh, good. That's why we're here. Awesome. <laughs> Got to follow those trails. You never know what you're going to find. Mm -hmm. A couple of tadpoles uh, growing into something beautiful. So w one thing that, that was mentioned in the intro, which we haven't yet touched on, which I do want to get to, is this idea of limitations on tracking methods. So how have tracking methods changed over time? And what kind of methods are we currently working with? So usually populations that are tracked by, let's say, industry initiatives or the government, so like caribou movements, they put tracking collars on them. So it's yeah. a tracking collar, GPS technology, you have their movement either in real time or, well, most of them nowadays is in, in real time um, points. But can you imagine having to put a collar on a toad? That's not doable. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not doable. So you have this huge bias towards mammals and birds mm -hmm. and you know it's great yes it is very important to study mammal and bird movement but amphibians are one of the um, taxonomic groups that are most vulnerable more, most endangered any conservation website would even like put that as a headline like amphibians are the ones that are disappearing at a faster rate than any other group can't we so, use chips like can't we insert chips into these guys so you could insert a chip so they're called pit tags. You could insert a chip, but what that does is you still have to go and kind of like scan them with a little, you know, scanner, just like you would a barcode. So that would tell you, you who get that real -time individual feedback? is. No, you wouldn't be able to get real-time feedback from those. You, to get to get real-time feedback, you need really expensive, even big devices. So even those collars that I was mentioning, usually they put it on maybe two females, two males in the population. So you can't really get data on mm -hmm. individual variation. You you get a sense of, in general, what they're doing, which is probably what they want to get out of that. But for my purpose of finding things at a smaller scale to tackle why we can't generalize things at a larger scale, I wanted to really you know get as many data points and as many individuals as possible. So what we do 
is we go out every night. So they're nocturnal, these toads. We walk this like five to seven kilometers stretch of land, which is our study site. And we find these toads. When we find one, we take a picture of its back, which so that picture has UTM or GPS coordinates assigned to it. So when I see it again, I can get its displacement from one night to the next. Mm-hmm. And essentially the pattern on their backs is what acts as an ID. So it's kind of like a fingerprint. And through that, like ward patterns on their backs, I can say like, okay, that's the same individual. So we have this program called Photospotter that someone in the lab, I think five years ago, developed a little longer ago, seven years Spotter, ago. Spotter, I like that. Nice, Photospotter. nice dual meaning there. Yeah. yeah. Spots and uh, spotting. There you go. Yeah. All it cool. does is just process your pictures, match those warts, patterns, and it tells you, okay, that's the same individual ID number 555 that you saw yesterday. <laughs> Knowledge Radini, matching warts like it's nobody's business. <laughs> so, believe it or not, our time is nearly up. I have one final oh. question for you. Crazy, huh? Crazy. So this is, this is kind of like a thought experiment. I want you to imagine that you're standing at the foot of an auditorium, huge, huge auditorium, thousand seater, packed to the brim, all eyes on you. Yikes. What do you tell them? So this is probably one of the most difficult questions I've been asked. I don't know. All that's on my mind right now is toads. I would tell them to start taking action when it comes to climate change initiatives, you know, stop saying that one person can't help in a little way and yeah i don't know honestly like i know i know talking about climate change like sounds like i'm just talking about things because that's what i do for a living but i think whatever my role would have been whether i was a wildlife ecologist or anything else i think i would be passionate about the need to take a stand when it comes to this global emergency that we're in so yeah, hopefully I'd have time to prep some uh, points to say before stepping onto that auditorium. <laughs> That's the trick of this question. We don't got prep time here. You just hop right in. Okay. Alrighty. That's the gist of it. Excellent. Well, Natalie, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you today. So yes, great. Fine. We touched on a lot of really lovely topics, and I, I feel like I've really gotten a lot out. You know, I, I feel like I've, I've just had a lot of questions that have been sitting in my head for so long, finally answered. So thank you for being the repository of knowledge that got that done. Awesome. Thanks for having me. It was fun. Absolutely. Have a lovely afternoon and take care. You too. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, you can check us out at abstractcast on Instagram. If you have any feedback, please feel free to leave a comment on the post for the current or any previous episode that you might have listened to. Or if you're a graduate student and you would like to be on the podcast yourself, you can drop us a line at abstractcast at gmail.com. This podcast will be released weekly on Sundays and is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and pretty much everywhere else you're going to find podcasts. So feel free to check us out around the internet. Until then, take it easy. Take it easy.